0: Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. This is the Security Ledger podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger in this episode of the podcast number 182. Ventilators, ventilators, ventilators. I didn't know what they were a few weeks ago. I know too much about ventilators now. We're still shopping for ventilators all across uh, the country. We need more. From Wuhan, China, to the Lombardy region of Italy, to Spain, and the boroughs of New York City, the coronavirus has taken a deadly toll worldwide. It has also shone a spotlight on critical shortages of medical equipment, especially respirators, which have been in high demand to treat patients who become critically ill from COVID. In the US, the coronavirus has prompted a run on respirators, with hospitals bringing decades-old hardware out of storage and putting it back into use, and manufacturing firms retooling to create new devices. But what if a common and fairly inexpensive piece of at-home medical equipment might be repurposed to help those sickened by COVID breathe and survive the worst of the illness? That was a challenge that a group of doctors presented to our guest this week, Trammell Hudson, an independent security researcher based in Amsterdam, Netherlands. A world-renowned expert in the security of firmware, or the software that runs machinery, Hudson had never worked on medical devices when he was approached by a group of pulmonologists Hudson's task to tap his deep knowledge of firmware to dig into the guts of so-called CPAP machines, which are used by those suffering from sleep apnea, and figure out a way to turn them into functioning respirators that hospitals might deploy in an emergency. Earlier this month, Tremel and some collaborators released AirBreak, a jailbreak for the AirSense 10 CPAP machine, a common low-cost sleep therapy device that turns it into a functional BiPAP machine, something that could be modified to use as a respirator. In this episode of the podcast, we invited Trammell into the studio to talk about the AirBreak project, hacking medical devices in the age of pandemics, and how OEMs are increasingly using software to both conceal and reveal the true capabilities of their hardware. I'm Charmel Hudson, currently the director of special projects with Lower
1: Layer Labs in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, I do independent security uh, research into hardware and firmware, typically on uh, laptops and servers. I'm very interested in both how do we build more secure systems, as well as how do we use open source and things like uh, Core Boot and Linux Boot to
0: uh, take better control of the systems that, that we own. Obviously, globally, we're all dealing with the same thing, which is the uh- coronavirus, COVID-19, and um, there is a great demand for uh, respirator machines. You did some really interesting research and development on modifying a very common piece of at-home medical equipment, these uh, CPAP machines, for use as respirators. The project's called Airbreak. Talk about what uh, how that came about. So the project is called Airbreak,
1: and I need to make an important clarification that this is for allowing clinicians to be able to use a CPAP and BiPAP machines uh, in sort of an off-label use as uh, ventilators. This is not the sort of thing that you would want to use on your own, that, you know, this you would need to do this under the supervision of a clinician. There's also additional hardware and things
0: that need to be uh, installed, like the viral filters, so that you don't end up spraying virus all over. Uh, just to start. Also, uh, CPAP and BiPAP; those are those are two different terms. Um, just briefly, uh, kind of, what are these devices used for? So they're typically
1: used to treat uh, sleep apnea and some other sleep disorders. Um, so a CPAP machine maintains a continuous positive airway pressure that helps uh, keep your uh, keeps the user's airways open while they're sleeping so that they can get enough oxygen. And a BiPAP machine does two levels, the, the bi. So it detects when the user is uh, exhaling and will reduce the pressure to make it easier for them to exhale. And typically, the uh, CPAP machines are sell for 300 to $600, and the BiPAP machines are in the $1,000 or more range. And then there's some, some fancier versions as well that add ventilator-like functionality. The BiPAP ST machine uh, has something that can detect if the user hasn't taken a breath in some period of time, and will actually try to force them to to breathe. And that particular machine, the BiPAP ST, has been approved by uh, Mount Sinai for use as a improvised uh, ventilator with addition of uh, viral filters and some other hardware. And the FDA has granted an emergency uh, use authorization for them to to use that essentially off label. I am not an expert in this area. In fact, I. I really had not even looked at CPAP machines and uh, these sleep disorders until about two weeks ago, when uh, some clinicians in on the East Coast contacted me because they they wanted to see if it's possible to take these low-end machines and adapt them to have similar functionality to the the higher-end the BiPAP STs that they were already uh, using in uh, some clinics. What they realized is that the low-end machines with some extensions in the firmware could probably serve very similar functions as the, uh, as the higher end machines. So they, they've reached out to me to ask if, it's, if I could uh, spend some time uh, digging through the firmware and uh, try to figure out how to add some extra functionality to it.
0: Can we just talk mechanically about like a CPAP or BiPAP machine and a ventilator, like under the hood, if you look at the mechanics of it, are they basically the same thing?
1: So a CPAP machine doesn't necessarily need all of the sensors. Uh, it really just needs a closed-loop pressure control uh, to maintain that continuous pressure. A BIPAP machine needs a sensor to be able to detect the exhalation so that it can reduce its uh, its output pressure. And a ventilator needs a timer to be able to do breath for the for the user who who might be sedated. Um, as well as typically ventilators will have hookups to uh, the hospital alarm systems and and other things.
0: Right. So there are kind of interfaces to uh, nurse station management, software platforms, and things like right. that. What
1: folks realized is that even the fairly low-end CPAP machines have a exhaust pressure, excuse me, uh, EPR, uh, exhale pressure reduction uh, function that can be turned on, which means that even the low-end ones had that sort of back pressure sensor to be able to detect the, the patient's uh, uh, exhale cycle. Adding the time functionality is just a, a matter of programming. So their assumption was that you know a, a cpap a cpap machine with a epr functionality could through a simple matter of programming be functionally equivalent uh, to the uh, the BiPAP ST or the ventilators that they were using, and could help reduce uh, the the pressure for, for those uh, ventilators in, in their
0: hospital. Let's start uh, talk about kind of how you got going with this. So I, I'm guessing you, you bought some of these machines or had them shipped to you, and and um, and where did you go from there? Uh, so it's two Fridays ago. Um, uh, <laughs> we're not talking about it's very much time. No, no, this is yeah. just uh, it, it's
1: been a it, it was a long you know uh, two weeks of eighteen hour days, but um, yeah, one of them. Uh, was drop shipped to me and Uh, I made sure it worked and then pulled it apart and started probing the chips on board uh, to figure out what what systems uh, were running, what sort of uh, security protections they might have. And together with uh, some other researchers, we we sort of mapped out the high level block diagram of the the CPAP machine. And then once I got a firmware dump, uh, I loaded it into uh, Ghidra and basically spent the next week and a half just staring at hex dumps. Uh, making sense of the, the control flow through the uh, device so that we could understand how the software is structured and what modifications we would need to make to add the features that the clinicians had requested. Very interesting
0: and kind of amazing that you were able to do it in that short a time period. H- how were you able to kind of make sense of that? Again, given that you, you don't obviously have the source code, you're, you're really just looking at a hexadecimal dump of the compiled binary. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you make sense of
1: there's it there's a really wonderful tool that the uh, the NSA released a year ago called a uh, Ghidra that's a open source uh, reverse engineering tool you can load a large binary into it tell it what the CPU architecture is and then it it's sort of an interactive disassembler uh, as well as something sort of like a decompiler it helps you uh, make sense of the of the binary image and you can then you can ask it questions like what other functions call this function, and you can then map out uh, data types and say, you know, I think this is a this is an array of, uh, of floats, or this is an array of shorts, and it can help you make sense of you know all those ones and zeros and the and the hexit values, and. In this case, uh, the device uses an off-the-shelf uh, CPU, an STM32 uh, microcontroller. So we can get a full data sheet and a reference manual for that CPU. It's an ARM core inside. So uh, Ghidra already knows how to disassemble and decompile those sorts of um, things. And based on strings in the binary, we were able to identify that it is using the UC uh, slash OS dash two kind of microkernel, and there are older versions of that available online that you can you can look through the source code. They they also are using the the EM Win uh, sort of GUI uh, toolkit for doing the user interface, and that's a closed source program as well. But there are headers available and uh, reference manual for it. So once you identify you know, that this is probably talking to the LCD controller, and you can sort of work your way up from there to mapping out how does it create uh, GUI elements on the screen, how does it move through the uh, the menuing system, and so on. And, and that then starts to give you a lot of insight into uh, the rest of the code. That if you say, well, this is displaying something called max pressure and sets this variable when you turn the knob, and this other function reads that and then copies it out to some PWM register, you can probably figure out that that's what's uh, controlling the motor speed. So sort of you're tracing the flow of data uh, through the system. And a combination of static analysis with tools like Ghidra and then runtime analysis with something called OpenOCD that's a JTAG debugger that you can hook up to GDB and then that allows you to single step through the through the firmware execution so you can set a breakpoint where you say, well, I think this function is you know, called when, when the user turns the, the knob. And so you set a breakpoint there, and then you turn the knob, and you see, does that breakpoint get triggered? And you can sort of, again, work your way through the code fairly
0: quickly to, uh, to, to get a good picture of it. And And so once you've kind of mapped out the flow of the firmware and how this device works, you, you then need to um, modify it. Were you adding a feature, or were you kind of um, enhancing a feature that already existed? So
1: initially, the plan was to uh, add a new feature, what's called a pressure control ventilator mode, where it does a, just a, a rhythmic cycle of a high-pressure inhale a low-pressure exhale, high-pressure inhale, low-pressure exhale. So to, in order to do that, we had to map out what uh, registers we had to write or what vari- global variables we had to set that controlled the output pressure. We had to figure out where the timer was so that we could uh, have a, a, a timed thing. And then we had to figure out how to schedule a callback in the in the real-time OS so that uh, our handler would get called. And then find some free space in the ROM or in the flash uh, to to uh, binary patch it with this function, and we, we got that working pretty quickly. I was able to draw on a previous project that I worked on um, about 10 years ago, called a Magic Lantern, that was building a. An open source runtime for Canon SLR cameras, and that has very similar sort of goals. Where I wanted to be able to change the functionality uh, and some of the functions of of the camera, and the easiest way to do that was to reverse engineer the firmware and figure out how to patch uh, Canon's ROM to add my own functions, and then be able to. Schedule those to be called uh, in response to like the user interface controls. Uh, we got that working fairly quickly, and then the clinicians, uh, in, in conjunction with the research lab, uh, hooked it up to a a test lung and experimental setup. And there's a brief write up about that on on the Airbreak.dev uh, website about
0: you know what tests they ran to try to validate uh, that mode. And you said that they they had initially approached you to to do this project. Were they um, kind of giving you parameters as you as you modified the firmware they've input into the actual kind of code that got added to it. Exactly. The the code that I wrote for that mode was entirely
1: based on on their input. And what I ended up doing was reusing uh, some of the input elements in the in the GUI to let them set the parameters, so that they could then explore through the parameter space of output pressures and uh, breath times and things. And they could just do that from from the user interface without having to make new firmware images.
0: So they tested it in this uh, test environment with this kind of um, artificial lung. How did that turn out? Uh,
1: that that turned out really well. They they were pleased with uh, the results. And that is, you know, it's a good proof of concept to be able to say we can add a new function to it that, you know, does something that uh, the clinicians wanted that adds a significant new capability. The other thing that we added uh, for them is uh, something that draws on the screen a bunch of the sensor data. These machines collect an enormous amount of data and they write it to uh, an SD card or send it out over a cell. Uh, modem in a way that the uh, user doesn't get to see it. That that's all for the insurance companies and the doctors.
0: Even though it's the user's data.
1: Yes. It's, and there is a, there's a project called a Sleepyhead and Oscar that have reverse engineered these file formats so that uh, CPAP users can make sense of them. For clinical use, however, they wanted this data to be displayed on screen and they wanted to see it also in a graphical format so that they could say, when was the last time the patient took a breath? When was the last time uh, the pressure you know exceeded some value or the flow exceeded some value? So we added like an oscilloscope mode that draws just a strip chart of of that data. And again, that's from reverse engineering the, uh, the windowing toolkit. So we can figure out, ah, this is the draw line function. This is the draw rectangle. And so that code is, uh, is checked into the, the air repo as well if folks want to add their own uh, user interface elements and things. The pressure controlled ventilator mode is not something that anyone would use at home. Um, you know, that uh, th- this is for uh, a sedated patient who no longer has their own breathing reflex. So it would not make for a very uh, good night's sleep to have uh, to have that uh, fighting against you. Based on what we've documented, a you know a motivated CPAP user could. Come up with uh, other interesting things that they they might want to add to it. You perhaps they want a different ramp uh, rate, or perhaps they want um, a louder. They they want an alarm if it detects a leak. Or there there are lots of things that um, that could be added, um, and that I'm hoping uh, the CPAP community will sort of run with and and you know be able to uh, to add. uh, Because I'm not an expert in in what they need. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm hoping that they can. They they can uh, use their own expertise and their own judgment to to do those things.
0: Right, and that's the use case here, which is hospitals, medical facilities. You know, might be very short on ventilators, but they may they may have a, a quite a number of these uh, CPAP machines uh, available to them, or or even lying around that uh, that they could then repurpose in an emergency if they if they had patients who, who needed to be on ventilators. Exactly,
1: and and this is really uh, intended as a short-term stopgap. You know, while the uh, production of ventilators ramps up, um, and potentially also, it, it could be very, very useful for um, uh, resource-constrained hospitals or uh, developing countries that don't have the money for the expensive ventilators. Because the price difference between a uh, low-end CPAP at three hundred dollars or so and a high-end BiPAP ST at three thousand, you know, or five thousand, it, it's it's pretty. Uh, astounding how much Difference there is in price when there's not a huge difference in the hardware.
0: In, in order to do this, as a as a hospital, let's say, are there um, security protocols around loading the firmware? Um, is that, is that something that's if, you know, if you want to to um, again jailbreak this, uh, load the modified firmware? Uh, is that something that is difficult to do, or you can do it as long as you have physical access to the device?
1: Yeah, if you have physical access, there's a easy uh, programming port. You do have to disassemble it to. i uh, gain access to that uh, to that port but it's it doesn't require any special tools or any special hardware uh, as we mentioned on the Airbreak website hopefully hospitals don't have to do this that the ideal case for this particular scenario is that the manufacturer could release a over-the-air firmware update that could use the cell modem to push out to specific serial numbers, or perhaps if there's some functionality to do a firmware update over the SD card, you know, so that the hospitals can do this with the manufacturer's blessing, because the manufacturer is in a much much better position to assess. The changes required. You know, they're not poking at data structures that they don't fully understand. You know, if you look at our the headers we've checked in, we have quite a few you know fields that we just don't know what they do. So they're just labeled, you know, offset uh, 6F. Who knows? The manufacturer knows exactly what that field does and what the risk is if it's, you know, if it's not updated in the correct way. Or... So it's really my hope that the CPAP manufacturers realize that they could help reduce the crisis by being able to repurpose a lot of these machines on a very, very short timescale. You know, maybe it's going to run them out of spec for a while. You know, maybe increasing the, the output pressure from 20 to 30 uh, centimeters of H2O you know, will cause it to break down in six months rather than six years. You know, there, there's lots of unknowns that you know, that are really hard to assess from the outside. But given the unprecedented nature of what we're facing and the very short-term time pressure, uh, I would really hope that they would make those changes available so that the clinicians who have protocols for using the, uh, the BiPAP-ST machines already
0: would be able to use the same protocols with these cheaper and more widely available hardware. We uh, talk and write about um, uh, right to repair and, and so on quite a bit on this podcast and, and elsewhere. How do, how do you see that larger argument about you know repair, maintenance, uh, access to things like schematics and diagnostic codes and so on as, as fitting into this?
1: I certainly miss the era of comp- when every computer came with a, a schematic and wiring diagrams and you know timing diagrams for, for all of the different bits of hardware. Um, it, it's, uh, it's unfortunate how much of that is hidden behind NDAs and service agreements. And a lot of it, I think, has to do also with market segmentation. Making hardware is expensive, but having different software builds for different feature sets is very, very inexpensive. And that sort of brings us to the you know the 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 more interesting part of what we found in, in the airbreak project. So after you know we we built the the pressure controlled ventilator mode that sort of the homebrew mod that did that and that worked but i noticed that there were also a bunch of strings in the firmware for uh, different models and different control modes and with a bit of uh, additional reverse engineering i found that by flipping some of the configuration bits in the rom uh, the machine would start up and uh, would unlock all of these other modes that were uh, only available on the much, much more expensive uh, devices from this manufacturer. And based on looking through the FCC filings and uh, you know photos that uh, folks have provided of the insides of the other hardware, there's not uh, a difference in the in the main boards and the and the devices. They're differentiated just by the software loads. Even though the, pr- the price difference may be hundreds or, or thousands of dollars, exactly, exactly, and that sort of market segmentation, you know, Tesla does this as well. That no matter which battery power uh, battery pack you buy, it's they all have the same cells in there, but your software limited to the range, or whether or not you have autopilot on your Tesla. You know, there's no new hardware. It's purely a software uh, change. So those sorts of market segmentation uh, strategies are fundamentally incompatible with a right to repair and sort of an open uh, design. You know, if the only thing that prevents you from unlocking a four thousand dollar autopilot feature is knowing that you have to set some bit uh, somewhere in a configuration file, it suddenly becomes um, much much harder to justify the price.
0: So I'd be remiss if I didn't say so. What what has become of of Airbreak? And I mean, I know you just really really went, went public with it a couple of days ago. But um, is there any reason to believe that um, these some of these modified CPAP and BiPAP machines may be uh, deployed as uh, ventilators?
1: I'm hoping. As I mentioned, I'm really hoping that the manufacturer uh, releases a, a firmware update to enable this so that uh, the hospitals don't need to uh, do this via via the, the homebrew route. Um, however, uh, I have heard from multiple um, uh, clinical groups that are interested in exploring it. The, uh, uh, the, the Mount Sinai protocols uh, showed that... Uh, hospitals can come up with their own off-label uses and uh, get them past the FDA. I would expect that if if there's no motion from the from the manufacturer,
0: that we might see you know some some developments along those front. Really interesting, and and uh, Tremel, thank you so much for the work that you did. I mean, it sounds like it was a, a huge investment of your time and energy, and uh, and obviously for for a very worthy cause.
1: It feels it's really nice to uh, to use my powers for good for once. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Crossover, crossover. Drama. As I mentioned, I'm hoping that there's that the CPAP users community can take advantage of of the Airbreak code tree, and you know, we do have a, a Slack setup. Airbreak. Com, and also the all the sources available from airbreak.dev and i'm uh, really hoping that yeah once once the ventilator crisis is passed that the uh, the uh, sleep therapy community is able to take this and run with it similar to the way the the magic lantern community has has grown you know so much over the past 10 years.
0: Uh, Termal, thanks so much for coming on our podcast i really appreciate it. Yeah well thank you so much for uh, for the questions and for the chance to, to talk about it. Trammell Hudson is the founder of Project Airbreak, and you can find him online at trmm.net. That's trmm.net.